She has been a beloved face of faith in our community for the past nine years. You are about to hear a part of the life story of Rabbi Beth Schwartz coming up. You don't want to miss it. There is the word, there is the way, and brothers and sisters who find strength in their belief. We meet Faces of Faith with Phil Scoggins. Welcome into another edition of Faces of Faith. We've been doing this for a little over three months now, so beginning to get the hang of it, and I'm just thankful that you are joining us for this edition of Faces of Faith, and I have a very special guest that I'm wanting to introduce to you at this time. Rabbi Beth Schwartz is joining us here in the podcast studio, and Rabbi Schwartz, you uh, and I probably got to know each other through Rotary. I think that was uh, one of the, the yes. common denominators for us yes. over the last nine years, but thank you for being willing to come and just share your heart with me on Faces of Faith today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's really a pleasure. I always assume that those who are tuning in uh, know maybe a little bit, but but not necessarily a lot about my guest. So I wanted to start off by uh, let's find out uh, your background, where your hometown is, uh, some of your growing up years, and the, your uh, your parents, and and just give us some of the history of Beth Schwartz, uh, and and take us back as far as you would like. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, and uh, I was a middle child, um, uh, the only daughter. I had a brother on either side of me. Okay. Very typical post-war baby boomer family. Um, born in the years after after World War II, my father was a vet. He, he had been wounded in France, um, and he was fortunate enough to be, um, after recuperating in England, to be posted to France, and he was in Paris on VE Day. Um, and I have a memento of his that's very dear to me that someone... Um, from another night from another nation's army gave to him wow. on on V day in Paris so um, World War two and the Cold War are very much a part of my cultural background um, and while my family did not have direct relatives whom we lost in the Holocaust still a lot of community mm-hmm. um, I lived in a largely Jewish neighborhood so that there were many survivors. Uh, in our neighborhood and survivors um, pursuing a new life and having the courage to have children and um, an urban neighborhood um, such as were built after World War II, streets and streets of what we called row houses um, starting about in the 1970s or so, we learned to call them townhouses. But (laughs) I I grew up in an urban (laughs) row house, walked to elementary school, Lots of outside playtime. Um, it was the time when, you know, when it got dark, your mother called you to come mm-hmm. home, and you said, "Ah, oh, mom." Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what was your favorite subject in school? Um, I was always a reader. Um, I was. Um, I loved biographies, um, and um, I was one of those one of those good little girls who who. You know, you get everybody's best wishes, which is to be that you could grow up or you could be a teacher or a secretary mm-hmm. in those days. Um, no one ever heard of, of women in any clergy 
um, let alone in in the rabbinate. Mm -hmm. And um, my family was not strictly observant, um, but we certainly had a Jewish atmosphere at home. And I went to uh, a Jewish high school. And I have to be honest and say that um, it was not a happy time in the public school system in Philadelphia. And I was the child who got good grades. Um, and this little high school was progressive, and it was focused on the humanities, which was very much where my interests were. So I went to a very small school, and when I say small, um, it had been a mansion. Um, it had been a mansion in the suburbs, so it was a big old house. Um, and I graduated in a class of 34. So when I say it was a small high yeah. school, it was a small high school. Well, in yeah. those high school years, what dreams did you have for your future? I, I loved history, um, and I loved the, the aspect, the human aspect of history, what motivated people, um, what made them tick. Um, I remember we had a role-playing project for, for a historical era, and the idea of getting trying to get into the skin of someone who had lived in a different time in a different place, um, and learning how to apply the, the values and morals of Judaism to the wider world, that it was, it was the time of the civil rights era, mm -hmm. and um, we learned to sing We Shall Overcome in Hebrew. Really? Um, because we were very, very supportive um, from my high school uh, of the civil rights movement. Um, and uh, so that was, that was very much um, a part of my cultural American education. Um, and because it was a small school, uh, students were encouraged to speak up um, and to have opinions. And um, so that sort of set me on a path of being willing and able to talk about things that interested me and, and events of the time. Um, my parents um, got the New York Times on Sundays, and I have been doing the New York Times crossword puzzle since <laughs> I was in high school. <laughs> um, my father was a history buff, and we shared that quite a bit. Um, and he learned um, to leave me the puzzle. Um, <laughs> so, But my parents were also interested in the arts, and I remember that they took us to theater, to um, my mother and I went to concerts uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia Orchestra was, was wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was not very far to get to New York. You could drive to New York in a couple of hours. So there were several times where we went to matinees on Broadway. Um, so I learned to appreciate musical theater in particular. My mother loved that. And, but theater in general. Um, Did you ever participate in any plays or anything in high school? Um, not on stage, uh -huh. um, but part of production. Um, uh -huh. I actually made costumes. Um, I was a costumer in high school and a little bit in, in college. Um, and so, no, I was not a natural-born on-stage person. Um, but uh, we did have productions, school productions. Uh -huh. And, um, in fact, 1968 was, um, dare I say, the year that I graduated from high school, and our two school plays that year, the, the school-wide play mm -hmm. um, 
was April the 4th, 1968, uh, the night that um, Martin Luther King Jr. Was, was assassinated. And our class play was June 4th, the night that Bobby Kennedy was shot. So that really punctuated mm. um, my senior year and really made an impact on, on all of us in, in, my, in my group that um, people would be willing to put themselves at risk and that uh, speaking out was important, um, even though there was a risk and the outpouring of emotion and recognizing that these issues were important um, and not just for comfortable white suburbanites mm-hmm. um, of any faith. So how did the... Um atmosphere in that high school helped to shape your worldview as you progressed on into college and and began your career? Um, I think because because we were so small, um, it was easy to engage your teachers in conversations Mm -hmm. um, and to ask our teachers what their what their motivations were and and how they felt about current issues, and they encouraged us to discuss and to talk about the values of Judaism in terms of um, ethics and morality, honesty, hard work, persistence, perseverance, especially when, um, when you're the target of discrimination, um, and to, uh, to be proud of your heritage, to know your heritage, um, to know... Uh, Judaism, not just in terms of the ritual observances, but in terms of history and people and culture and where we've been over throughout time and how we've responded to adversity and also through the study of of texts, how to really read actively. So to, to study, whether it's Holy Scripture or a history book, um, to ask questions um, and that sort of, even if you're sitting by yourself, to have a conversation with the writer, with the author. Why was this event important? What was the impact of this event? Who was benefiting and who was left out? Um, and to really think through beyond just what was on the page, but to think about um, social context, historical context, uh, history, History is made by people, and sometimes people have grand motives and big ideals, and sometimes they can be very petty. Um, and it's, I think it's important to be able to see the role of personality in how things unfold locally. So to have a kind of mind that is very um, inquiring and... Um, Why, well, you could have been a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in my next life. <laughs> <laughs> Take us on to college and, and what, uh, what led you in the direction that you, uh, where you attended. Um, well, I attended more than one college, um, partially because I was also interested in art um, and, um, and design. And I tried that first, and um, I found myself reading kind of very heavy literature in the in the evening because it wasn't it wasn't engaging enough intellectually, and I know that makes me sound very nerdy, but that's the truth. <laughs> um, so I went to uh, I transferred to Temple University in 
Philadelphia um, and decided to pursue what I really loved, which was history. Um, and I was particularly interested in European history. So um, I transferred to the State University of New York at Binghamton, um, which was a very good place to study European history. It, um, and there were really, really good teachers, um, dynamic teachers. And um, so I studied European history because I thought it mattered and um, had a very influential professor who taught, actually taught the history of Germany. Um, and so I studied 20th century Germany. And um, that was fascinating and really helped give me some insights into the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I studied the foreign policy of Great Britain, which had a, an important effect on the Jewish communities of Europe, as well as leading into World War II. And yes, remembering that in my childhood, anything after 1945 was still current events. Mm -hmm. So the, the war, the Holocaust, um, which was just beginning to be talked about widely when I was in high school, um, and uh, literature as well. I loved, I was always a reader. I loved literature. So, um, so I took a lot of literature courses. Um, my history major required that I take some non-Western coursework. Um, so I, I took a course in uh, ancient Egypt, and I took a course in um, modern China, which was very, very helpful, as it has turned out. Um, just the, the influence of from the 19th century onward in the Chinese revolutions. Um, so, and I did some theater extra as an extracurricular in, um, in college as well. I did costumes. Um, and I found that very creative, and the people were very fun. And um, and I met my husband in Binghamton. So um, big moment, <laughs> not planned. <laughs> well, tell um, me, uh, tell me about your husband and how that happened. Um, we actually met um, at uh, in the student union at a bridge table. There was a, <laughs> a, a long running game of of bridge. I would learn to play bridge. My husband had played bridge um, since he was uh, twelve or so because uh, his grandmother needed a fourth. <laughs> um, so we actually were introduced at a bridge table um, and played a lot of bridge and hung out and got married. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, um, depending upon it, one might dictate the other, but uh, in your early years of marriage, what what did you do? What did your, did your husband do? Where did you call home? Where did you set up uh, home? Um, well... Um, my husband, um, my husband uh, went to work for IBM. Um, he was in graduate school when I met him, and it was one of the very, very first, count on the fingers of one hand, graduate programs that had anything to do with computers in the country. Wow. Um, and he was one of the first students in that program. Uh, so um, that was really significant. Mm -hmm. And when IBM hired him, um, he was one of the first two people who had a master's degree in anything to do with computers. Um, so he went to work for IBM, and they sent him to New Jersey, to South Jersey, um, to work on air traffic control systems. Oh. Um, 
but uh, he had to be a genius. <laughs> he was pretty smart. Now his name? Uh, his name was Larry Lawrence Washington, and before you ask, um, he was the sixth grade nephew of George Washington. Um, my older brother thought that was very funny that his sister, that the history nerd, happened to find Larry Washington. Um, to and marry, the connection. Um, <laughs> but um, he's was directly descended from two of George Washington's brothers, so um, their great grandchildren married each other sometime in the earlyish to mid nineteenth century. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of great Washington stories, wow. um, and. Um, so we lived in, in South Jersey, and my very first job actually was as a bank teller um, in a small savings and loan, mm. um, <laughs> just when computers were being introduced um, into the banking industry. So, um, so I did that until we had our first child. Um, and uh, so my children's names are Washington. Um, and they... Uh, we, we did our best to give them a sense of history and their own heritage. Um, my husband always th thought that um, we really had the marriage of, of two of the great, great threads of American experience, um, the, the colonial founding generation mm -hmm. and the 100 years later, the immigration from Eastern Europe um, as my my great-grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe on both sides. Uh, both grandmothers were born in this country. Both grandfathers were born in Europe. Wow. So my husband thought that this was a really good heritage for, for our kids. Yes. Um, so um, we had, and then when, I, when my kids were little, um, so I have a son and a daughter, um, I got a master's degree. Um, by that time, we had moved to Northern Virginia. IBM transferred him. Uh, and um, he worked for the federal systems division. He worked on sonar systems, um, so which was really, really fascinating and very, very hard work. Um, but I went to graduate school while the kids were little so that I could, something I could do part-time and yet prepare for the future. Um, I have a, a Master of Education in Guidance and Counseling for higher education. So all of those academic administrators, student personnel services, that's the kind of thing that I had done that I got my, my master's degree in. Um, and even though I really didn't work in that field very much, um, it's been a very useful, very <laughs> useful um, background um, in terms of people skills and being able to talk to people and to listen to people. So. Um, I actually went to work uh, for a consulting firm in the Washington area. Um, sometimes they were known as Beltway Bandits, um, <laughs> but our clients were the Department of Education. So, I, so the client, the federal client my group served was the Office of Post-Secondary Education. So even though it sounds like it's not a, not a smooth transition, it was actually a pretty solid connection. Mm -hmm. um, because we were studying federal assistance programs for college students. So, um, so I had that background um, and was very useful. So in Virginia, where, <laughs> what led you 
and what is the time span but between then and, and when you ended up here in Columbus? Um, we lived in Virginia for 18 years. Um, we actually moved to Virginia when my daughter was a newborn. Um, and uh, let's, let's stop for a moment because you mentioned daughter. Yes. And let's shift it to granddaughter because you, we are talking to a brand new grandmother. Second time, but yes. The second time, but just within the last nine days. So brag on this new grandbaby. Tell us her name. Well, the new, my new grandbaby is Zeta Louise Barrier Washington, and she is my son's daughter. Okay. Um, so my son and his wife have, have two children. Um, their, their son is six years old, um, and he is Scott Albert Blackburn Washington. So lots of family names because that's what that's the Washington family does. Yes. <laughs> um, and um, so, um, so we lived in Northern Virginia for, for 18 years. Um, and while we lived there, I, um, I actually went to work for uh, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation as a systems analyst, which is when you work for a consulting firm, you, um, you come in with one set of skills and you get the opportunity to learn more and more skills, which you can build on and take in other directions. And so I was a systems analyst for Freddie Mac, mm -hmm. um, and that was my day job. And had my son, um, and uh, because we had children, we joined a congregation. Um, we were living in, in the Manassas area in Virginia, mm -hmm. so those of you who are Civil War Buffs, Manassas, Bull Run. Yes. Um, we lived in that area. Okay. Um, and very active in the congregation, and that really began to draw us in in terms of having uh, a community of like-minded values of faith that, um, that had a long, deep heritage with it and that gave us a lot of joy. Um, and a place for our family and for our kids uh, to grow up with a foundation, with a foundation of um, peoplehood and God and um, really opportunities to engage their minds, their souls, their hearts. Um, so um, both of them became bar and bat mitzvah there. Um, so, um, so we were very active in the congregation, and because I could read Hebrew, um, even though I hadn't done very much with it since high school, mm -hmm. um, I could read Hebrew better than anybody else in this very small congregation, and so they were asking me if I would tutor students to become bar or bat mitzvah. So, um, so I started to do that and just kind of grew in a, in a more religious role and religious leadership role. Mm -hmm in the congregation um and so this was this planting a seed for you for the apparently <laughs> seems like it apparently yeah. um although i i i didn't realize it was very fulfilling and eventually it was kind of jarring to go back into my office on monday mornings um and deal with data definitions and mm. um things like that, but um, there came a time when we, we were without a rabbi, um, 
very suddenly our rabbi had a health crisis. And um, everybody turned to me and said, well, you're going to step in for her. <laughs> and I kind of said, okay. Um, and I called her, and she sort of walked me through what I would need to do mm -hmm. um, because there were a number of life cycle events on the calendar that I would have to lead. Um, and um, you know, that really made me think. And by the time I realized that maybe I should be doing something more about that, um, you know, everybody else around me sort of knew. And so wow. I always say I was the last one to figure mm -hmm. it out. Um, but it is, you know, I, I had children in high school. Mm -hmm. I had a full-time job, which I was good at and was not in danger of losing. Um, my husband had his career, and um, what do we do? Um, but um, So did that open an avenue of, of a lot of conversation between you and God of, is this? Oh, yeah. Is this really what direction oh, yeah. that I'm heading in? Yeah, um, and and long conversations um, with my rabbi. Mm -hmm. um, we had acquired a new rabbi who mm -hmm. is still a dear friend. Um, long conversations, conversations with my husband, um, who also at the time was diagnosed with uh, a cancer and had radiation treatment, and we sort of were thinking, well, what do we do? And I was accepted to rabbinical school, which um, that was a big deal. It was a big deal to, to apply. It was a big deal for me to say, you know, sort of get myself in order and um, not just documentation for an application to a seminary, but just in my own head and my own heart. Um, and I was accepted, and uh, my husband finished his radiation treatment, and he was so thankful to be finished, um, and we decided to go ahead, um, and fortunately, he was able to take a leave of absence from his job, because um, in my seminary, you spend your first year living in Jerusalem. So uh, my daughter graduated from high school, and um, a week and a half later, um, my husband and my son and I took off for Jerusalem. She was going to college, and she wanted to go to college, um, where she wanted to go to college. So we went to Jerusalem for a year. What was that like? Um, I've been there uh, once. Okay. It was in 1999. In fact, I was working here. Ah. Um, and... We had um, an opportunity was presented to us from the Ministry of Tourism. Mm -hmm. And in 1999, Jerusalem, uh, Israel was saying this 2000, 2000 was going to be a big year for tourism. Mm -hmm. So um, the offer was extended that if you will come uh, to the Holy Land and tour mm -hmm. and do whatever stories that we can help you set up to do. Yeah. And then just come back, share your experience. And so we did. We were, uh, we left, I believe it was in September, and spent 10 days mm -hmm. and came back and put an hour special together. Is that all? 
it was compressed. Yeah, <laughs> let's, yeah. Let's put it that way. It was very compressed. Yeah. But I, um, I know those tours, and and you don't get a lot of no. downtime. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had said, look, pack the agenda full. We don't don't sure. don't build any rest time. We want to go go go. Halfway through it, <laughs> we, we were regretting that. Yeah. But it was it was a, a trip of a lifetime. Yes. It, it, and, yeah. and and I'm sorry to to deviate from the no, course that's, that's here. That's all right. But uh, so you're going to one of the oldest cities in the world. We flew into Tel Aviv, mm-hmm. and um, we we made a straight <coughs> straight shot for Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so as we are driving into Jerusalem, driving up, the first impression that I got in the oldest city uh, that I had ever been in was how many people were on cell phones. <laughs> Everywhere you looked. I mean, this was 20 years ago. But people don't realize how much of, of cell phone technology was pioneered in Israel. Clearly. Um, uh, 20 years ago, it yeah. was... It was very common to see people standing on the street corner on their cell phones. And back here 20 years ago, that was, you had to be careful what plan you signed up. You know, a long distance mm-hmm. call could, could be expensive. And, and it's, but I just thought how ironic that to be in such an old city and the new technology of cell phones was on display everywhere. That's Israel. <laughs> <laughs> that, so tell, that's me about, Israel. tell me about your year there. Um, well, I spent um, I spent much of my time in, in with my nose in the books. Uh-huh. Um, the idea was to um, to focus on on our, our language skills, uh, modern Hebrew and rabbinic Hebrew and biblical Hebrew, which are not all the same thing, um, and lots of technical aspects, but also to have the opportunity to live in Jewish time according to the Jewish calendar, which was so wonderful. Um, The fact that um, on Friday at lunchtime, things begin to to shut down. People are leaving their offices around 1 Mm o'clock. Schools close. The flower stalls are packed with people buying flowers for the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Um, Walking to synagogue for services on Friday evening and having a long, leisurely dinner afterwards. Um, Saturdays are quiet in Jerusalem. The bus service doesn't run um, because it's the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not true all over the country, but um, the bus is stopped in um, and didn't come back until, didn't come back on until sundown on Saturday night. And so it was very quiet. People spend time with their families. Um, even people who are not ritually observant, it's really a day of rest and relaxation and relationships. To visit with your family, with your friends, do things that you don't have time to do. Um, and then Saturday night, social life is very lively. People are, are out in the streets and in the cafes. Um, but to have the world um, oriented towards Jewish holidays, Jewish seasons, um, it was it was just a blessing. It really was, um, and something that we sometimes have to struggle with outside of Israel because we live on civil calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, but it was really that was really wonderful. We did some touring of the country. Um, we spent um, a small group of us spent um, the holiday of Sukkot, which is a harvest holiday, down south in the Negev Desert, um, in the valley between um, Israel and Jordan, uh, and just hanging out with people and talking history and getting a feel for um, how Israelis view the world, but also how they view their faith, which can be very, very different. Um, if we think of Judaism in its diversity in this part of the world, it's far more diverse in Israel um, in terms of different practices, different beliefs, different cultural threads coming together or not. Um, so as, as an example, um, and I know this has changed since the mid-90s, but um, on Passover, uh, in the European tradition, um, one does not eat rice or legumes in addition to not eating leavened bread. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Middle Eastern tradition of Judaism, um, they do eat rice and legumes. And so all the restaurants that stayed open during the week of Passover, because many restaurants would just close, um, they would have a sign in the, in the window saying whether or not they served those foods mm-hmm. so that you would know before you went into the restaurant, did it match your dietary practice? Um, things like that, making a compromise. But also, um, my son was in 10th grade, um, and he went to a, an American high school program that was connected to my seminary. And, um, but it was a very experiential interdisciplinary program, which was the best thing that could have happened to him. Um, we just saw him blossom mm-hmm. um, that year. And um, he learned to speak Hebrew and sound like an Israeli, which meant that he had very good Israeli accent, but didn't really know much grammar uh, because Israelis don't pay a lot of attention to grammar in their daily speech, just like we don't <laughs> pay attention to English very much. Um, but he had a wonderful, wonderful year. And because everything was so interdisciplinary, um, so he got physical education credit back in the States for all of the hiking and touring that they did. Um, and if they went hiking and touring, then they would write about it, and that would be their English mm-hmm. composition. So things like that. He had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, and I would see him at break time in the mornings between classes, and my classmates who were mostly, I would say about half the class, had just graduated from college. Um, and so he was, he was like their little brother, <laughs> um, coming around, um, and they still feel that way about him. Um, but also uh, the presence of soldiers um, and to watch them in the streets um, because everyone, virtually everyone, is, uh, goes into military service at age 18 or an alternative service, but boys and girls. Um, and to see them in the streets armed, um, just with their rifles slung over their shoulders. And that's, that's normal um, to know that um, every bus driver we had was armed, even though nobody saw it. 
um, you always had to be um, aware of the possibility of terrorism. Um, Israelis can be very brash and rude um, and don't have time for small talk. Um, and when there would be a, an alert that there was a suspicious package somewhere, you never saw people get so quiet so fast. I mean, traffic stopped. Israeli drivers so no, are notorious for honking their horns and being aggressive, and everything would stop for security. Um, so they have this juxtaposition of this vibrant society, very social. Mm-hmm. Um, they are world leaders in computer technology and medical technology, um, miles ahead of many other countries and have. Israel has um, is second only to the United States in number of patents granted because they are they are they're called the startup nation and they really are. So you have the juxtaposition of all of that plus the threat of terrorism all the time. Um, all the time. You must always be aware um, because terrorists target civilians and there this was the era where there were still bus bombings um, and bombings in cafes and restaurants. So um, it, it's, it's very, it, 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 it can make you nervous. It's something you have to get used to. It's something you just have to absorb. Um, and uh, there's a lot of research, social research done on um, chronic traumatic stress in Israel because, because of this ongoing threat um, and the presence of safe rooms in, in most homes and public buildings, um, and at the same time, um, there is such a joy about being together, about having this identity of overcoming uh, history, adversity, and creating. You know, Israel used to be known for making the desert bloom, um, and in my very first trip to Israel, um, you could still see places where you could walk up to the border and you knew the border was there because the grass, there was a border of the, yeah. there was grass on one side and sand on the other, or dirt on the other. Um, so this tremendous creativity um, and energy um, and also a sense for um, humanity. Um, Israel, I think, suffers sometimes because most of the world, because they don't toot their own horn when they're doing humanitarian work, um, and because it's just what you do. It is just a given. Um, So my year in Israel was June of 94 to June of 95, um, after um, the massacres in Rwanda. Um, Nobody, it was... Israel didn't advertise that they sent a medical field hospital to Rwanda, um, just as they had a a field hospital was the first hospital set up in Haiti after the earthquake, Mm -hmm. the last earthquake. Um, This kind of humanitarian work there, um, pioneers and experts in sniffing out survivors um, from bombed buildings or buildings destroyed from earthquakes. So... um, they treat 
um, if you go into the hospital system in Israel, you see Arab staff, Arab-Israeli staff, Arab staff, Jewish staff working together in the north, um, victims of, uh, of bombings and terror in, on the other side of the Lebanese border or during the Syrian civil war. Um, Israel had a field ho- hospital on the border um, to treat civilians uh, and would treat civilians and then help them ver- to very quietly return home because to, if it were known that they had been treated in Israel, they would be in danger. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just a crazy and scary situation. Um, and uh, so all of that is happening all the time at the same time. Um, and so, yes, there are, there are challenges and... Um, it's a very it, it's like no other place. Well, <laughs> it, how it did really you is. extract yourself from a place that you thoroughly spent a year enjoying being there and studying? I'm sure was mm-hmm. was difficult, but um, I had to come back to seminary. You had, you had to come back to <laughs> I reality. Four, I had four more years of <laughs> seminary to do, um, and um, where did you do that? In Cincinnati, okay. uh, my my seminary's home campus is in Cincinnati Hebrew Union College. Jewish Institute of Religion has a campus. In, the original campus is in Cincinnati. There's a campus in New York, in Lower Manhattan. There's a campus in Jerusalem. There's a campus in Los Angeles. Okay. So, but it's all the same school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was ordained in 1999, um, and I uh, took a position in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, where I was the first woman rabbi in in. Knoxville, Tennessee, um, and the first woman full-time solo rabbi in Tennessee. Um, there are a few other women who had served part-time or as an assi- assistant, but I was the first solo full-time woman rabbi in Tennessee. I'll let you get a, a drink of water there. You've been doing a lot of talking, but curious as to how you felt blazing that trail for um, women aware but you just do what you do um sometimes it's you're a little more conscious because and i don't mean to sound stereotypical but there are some things that women think of doing that men don't think of doing and and vice versa Mm -hmm. so as a for instance when i have someone studying to convert to judaism um i will assign them to learn how to bake challah because that's such an important part of Jewish family life is, is having challah at home on, on the Sabbath. Um, men, women, both go, go, go bake challah. Or on Passover, I would assign them to help in the kitchen with the temple members who were preparing the Seder. Mm-hmm. Um, I assign cookbooks because there's so much cultural history in a cookbook. Um, so... Uh, I did a lot of community work in Knoxville as well. Um, and so when I came here in 2012, one of the things that attracted me to Columbus was um, that Temple Israel wanted a rabbi who was community-oriented because that's the tradition here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could not have asked for a better place to be. Well, you, um, you came at a, an extraordinary time, an unfortunate time in terms of uh, shortly after you arrived, uh, one of uh, the beloved um, J- 
Judge Aaron Cohn had passed, Cohn. and you um, were faced with having to handle that service, and, and what a responsibility, because you talk about a, a, a gentleman who um, blazed a trail. I mean, the oldest juvenile court judge in the country. Um, what a personality. Uh, he was a Georgia Bulldog, as am I. Yes, yes. Uh, so we had that connection, the rotary connection, but um, for, for that to be your first major undertaking, to welcome to Columbus, and oh, by the way, um, Judge Cohn has passed, and it's on your shoulders. Yes, so my husband wow. and I arrived in Columbus on a Sunday, sun, on a Sunday evening, I guess it was maybe June 30th or July 1st, and I got a phone call on July the 4th, on Wednesday, July mm. the 4th, that Judge Cohn had, had passed away, that mm. he had died. And um, and his son, Leslie, called me mm-hmm. and, and said that um, his father was, um, was an important person, um, and that even though I didn't know that, um, his father was a very much a believer in doing the right thing the right way. Mm-hmm. And since I was now the rabbi in town, um, even though my contract didn't start for two weeks. Um, but um, the family wanted me to do the funeral. Um, and they were so welcoming. And really, as much as they shared with me what I needed to know in mm-hmm. order to take care of Judge Cohn and in order to take care of them, um, at the same time, um, they really embraced my husband and, and me um, and really made us feel um, that we were stepping into a community and that we were not we were not different. We were going to be part of their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to this day and for the rest, you know, the rest of my life, I will always say that um, Judge Cohn really blessed me. Wow. Um, and um, I absolutely, I visit his grave when I'm at the cemetery <laughs> Um, well, I know your your husband passed how long ago? Two years ago. Yeah. Um, and so he is buried here. Um, and um, he's buried here because he was happy here, um, because Columbus embraced him. Mm-hmm. Um, he had retired from being an engineer and became a social worker, um, got a master's degree in social work while I was in seminary. And um, this community embraced him and gave him opportunities to serve. Um, and to do what he was trained to do and to do what he loved to do. Um, and um, so he he belongs here. <laughs> he, he absolutely belongs here. Now, are both of your children here too or not? No. Um, my son and his wife and now two children um, live with me. Um, my husband had a long illness, and um, my daughter-in-law teaches at Shaw High School. Ms. Washington. I had two. Uh, my children went to Shaw, so well familiar with the school. And um, she, she, so they wanted to move here to be near us. Um, and uh, as my husband's health declined, we decided that um, we wanted to live together. So bought a big house, um, and so they live with me, my son, my daughter-in-law, and the little ones. 
um, which has been just a joy. A blessing. A joy, a blessing, many blessings. Um, And uh, my daughter, who is my firstborn, um, is a a professor in a small college in in Virginia. Um, So um, she has been here many times, um, but she's she's in Virginia. So, um, but a little piece of her is here. As you look back over, and again, we're, we're coming up upon, and I'm not sure, I'm sure it's public, but that you are going to be retiring at the yes. end of this month. Mm-hmm. It's um, public. I can't uh, fathom, you know, you not being Rabbi Beth Schwartz, you know, in Temple Israel, but uh, as you look back over the past nine years, tell me the high points, some of the things that you're so thankful and proud of that have happened over the course of, the, of uh, your time at Temple Israel? Um, first of all, I, I will be Rabbi Beth Schwartz in Columbus. I'm not leaving. I'm, I'm staying Great. in Columbus. Good. Um, I just won't be at Temple Israel. So it'll be a first that there are actually um, two rabbis living in town. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my successor, Rabbi Shmuel Poland, is newly ordained and has moved to Columbus. And um, But Columbus... Ha- through Temple Israel, has given me lots of opportunity to um, to be of service in the community, to um, to represent a wonderful congregation. Um, and in some ways, it doesn't matter what faith tradition or what denomination. Uh, congregations are a lot alike across the board, and um, Temple Israel is is a good, healthy congregation. I love the history, the long history. I love that um, the Jewish community has been a part of Columbus since the very beginning and has been accepted, never questioned, um, respected, valued. Um, That says a lot about Columbus. I think that Columbus is of a size where things can happen to make the community better that, um, that you couldn't do in a smaller community because you lack the resources and you can't do in a larger community because there's too much infrastructure and territory and, and, um, and it bureaucracy. Is a good size. It's, it's a good size mm-hmm. to, to get things done. And so I'm, I'm very proud of my work with um, Home for Good um, and uh, to be part of the 10-year plan to end homelessness. Um, we're coming into year nine, and wow. already, already, and the progress that we've made um, in creating a community of collaboration. Um, what the federal government requires is is what's called a continuum of care, and that means that that there's an integration of information that agencies can share, that people can really network. You know, we talk about the value of networking mm-hmm. in the corporate world. Well, the value of networking within the homeless community, the agencies, the groups who work to reduce and prevent homelessness, that networking is now in place. Um, we think of it as a single system. And so I'm very proud of that. And that's one place where my training as a systems analyst from way back has mm-hmm. been has been very helpful. Uh, nothing's ever wasted, but I'm I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud to have been a teacher in the community, um, to speak to church groups, civic groups, 
classes. Um, one of my favorite things was that I was invited to be uh, the dramaturge for um, the revi a, a revival of Fiddler on the Roof at CSU. Um, that was a lot of fun. I bet. Um, and uh, yes, if you're listening CSU, I'll be available. <laughs> um, so, but just all kinds of things in in the community to be able to um, be in a position to demonstrate where faith can transcend particular traditions, um, where we can come together to um, to accomplish things on in, in the name of our shared ideals, no matter how we pray or where we worship, um, but the essential values of our traditions about creating a better world, creating a better community, um, respecting the dignity of individuals. Um, those are things that, um, that I am very, very proud of, and I really think that Columbus has given me a lot of opportunity um, that, uh, that I've become a better rabbi because of Temple Israel um, in my years here. Um, I have I have loved teaching and leading worship at Temple Israel. I have loved our holiday separate celebrations. Um, you know, there are always frustrations and and always you know people who are a little more difficult than other people sometimes. And and rabbis get to hear a lot of that. <laughs> um, but um, this is not a town of um, grudges and it's a place where you can disagree and be very loud in a meeting over your disagreements and um, walk away friends and walk away and have a cup of coffee together um, so um, and uh, to do interfaith work I have dear friends in in clergy in this community for which I'm very grateful um, for opportunity, but also it's just very gratifying, um, and um, just a, this is just a good, healthy, solid town. And I know we have lots of problems. I know there are things that need work, um, education, our education system, our homelessness, poverty, inequality, um, voting, access, um, all of those things that exist everywhere, and, and some of the political differences and attitudes that um, drive me crazy some days and make me very sad, <laughs> very sad other days. Um, but, um, but there's possibility here, um, and the ideas of things that not only that we can do, but that we can um, build on um, I listened to the presentation at Rotary from the dean of Mercer Medical School and the opportunities for building relationships and providing service um, as a way to train new doctors, but also to train those doctors in such a way that they will be, um, that they will be of service and that the community will benefit while they are in training no, we, without having to wait until they graduate. Yeah. Um, those kind, that kind of thinking, um, when I see that, and I've seen it a lot here, um, this is truly, truly a very, very special community. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. Well, we are fortunate to have you staying in Columbus. 
you're retiring, but you're going to be here. And where I got a feeling wherever your grandchildren go, (laughs) you may go. I may go. (laughs) Indeed. That's the way it works. Indeed. But you have been a blessing not only to your congregation, but to your community. And as I told you when we first started, when I tell you that the hour is basically up, you're going to say, no way, we haven't been talking that long, but we're getting, we're sneaking up on uh, an hour of conversation. And I guess uh, my last question for you, Rabbi, would be, you know, if you could, as an outgoing uh, rabbi, um, what would be your parting message to people, you know, in the community about as we are uh, coming through some troubled waters over the course of the last year with the pandemic, with the social mm-hmm. unrest with, with a lot of problems, but we turn to our spiritual leaders for counsel. Mm-hmm. What would yours be as, uh, as a, a last question to you today? Yeah. Give me an easy one, right? <laughs> Take uh, all the time you want. <laughs> well, it's very distressing to, to see and hear our neighbors um, not see one another as neighbors. Um, there, I was, I was looking for, um, something through my files as I'm cleaning out my office and I saw a cartoon in my files that I'm keeping, um, that was illustrating, it was a picture of Noah's Ark and it was illustrating a sermon that said, you know, we're all in the same boat. Um, we are all in the same boat. Uh, we are all created in the divine image we're all reflections of God, and we need to see that in each other. Um, the idea that we, that in order for you to flourish, I have to give something up, is an idea that really needs to be rejected, because that is not true. Um, when everyone is doing well, the community is doing even better. Uh, when children have safe places to live and go to school when they are educated that not only enables uh, them to succeed as individuals but it enables the community to succeed and it brings good things to the community Uh, it brings businesses and organizations because this was this is a place where people want to be equality is not a zero-sum game And in order for us all to flourish, we need to hold hands. We need to look in the mirror and see our neighbors. We need to have empathy for others and to recognize that if they are not doing well, there really is a level on which we are not doing well. So if we want to be blessed, um, we need to be blessings Um, There's a a teaching by a 20th century Jewish philosopher, Martin Buber, who taught that um, in the place where people are hurting, don't wait for God. Act as if God isn't coming and you're the one who is needed. Um, Because God will be there and God will be there through your hands. Mm -hmm. So the ideas that, that people use to separate us are not the ideas that, that bring us to a good place in the future, but the ideas that 
have us helping each other and sharing ideals and seeing the value of our neighbors. If we each do our part, then then we'll succeed as individuals, we'll succeed as a community, and God will bless us for for being the people God wants us to be, a people of love and compassion, of empathy, of dignity, and of community. Beautiful words of wisdom from someone that uh, has found your way into a lot of people's hearts in Columbus, and you're, you. you're going to stay there, whether you're in uh, at Temple Israel in, as a rabbi or not, but we are, we're thankful for your impact on so many over the last nine years that you've been here. My heart is certainly very full for having become a part of Columbus, Georgia. Thanks for being my guest. Thank you for sharing from your heart, Rabbi Schwartz. I appreciate you. Thank you. You too, Phil, a friend. As we always say at this time in the podcast, whatever you're going through, always remember, keep the faith.